live from New York. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Vaccine Vavavoom Pfizer says its COVID treatment could be more than 90% effective. Stock surge, that news sends global markets soaring. And the transition team, Joe Biden, makes tackling the coronavirus his top priority. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Again, to first move. Great to be back with you for a special post-presidential election edition of our show today. There's perhaps, though, only one thing that could upstage Joe Biden today, and that's the announcement of a viable vaccine. And that's the momentous news from Pfizer and BioNTech, their partner today who said so far data on their COVID shot shows that it is more than 90% effective in late stage trials. We are suddenly looking at the possibility of a post-COVID world. As you can imagine, investors at this stage not asking some of the deep questions that we need to ask this morning about the timing of this vaccine, about supplies of this vaccine. Instead, We'll bring you the context. Meanwhile, global markets are soaring. We are set to open today at record highs for the Dow and for the S&P 500. Look at that. The gains are global and they are growth driven. Travel stocks, airlines, all soaring. Interesting, the relative underperformer here today, and you can see that on the screen, is the tech sector, the sector that's benefited most from the work from home shift. Zoom right now down double digits pre-market. We'll take a look at that at the open. This is a global market story. However, all prices also leaping as hopes for a return to some form of global growth build here. If we take a breath, we're already set. We were already set to add to the bumper 7% plus gains we saw last week post the presidential election for the S&P. And we can't forget that either after the best week since April, the best election week gains, in fact, since 1932, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt won his first term in office. We were already hitting milestones overseas too. the Nikkei in Japan, racing to its highest level in almost 30 years. Hopes for reduced trade tensions under a new presidency helping emerging market stocks last week too. The MSCI Emerging Markets ETF, that exchange traded fund, rising some 7%. That also, as you can see in front of you, sitting at multi-year highs. We've long said news of a vaccine outweighs the importance perhaps of presidential elections and stimulus for markets and where they stand today. And today, it's all about vaccine vavavoom. Let's get to the drivers. Dr. Anthony Fauci telling CNN the latest latest news from Pfizer is extraordinarily good news. And our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, has been speaking to Pfizer's CEO too. And Dr. Gupta joins us now. Sanjay, amazing to have you with us. I'm trying to curb my enthusiasm and failing miserably. But Pfizer is reporting that their vaccine is over 90% effective. It's huge. Here's what the CEO just said to you. 90% is a game changer. 90%, now you are uh, hoping to have a tool in your war against this pandemic that could be significantly effective. Uh, How long this protection will last is something that we don't know right now, but uh, it's part of the objectives of this study. We will follow up the 44,000 people that uh, they received, uh, they are part of this uh, study for two years. And during this follow-up, obviously, we will be looking also 
the durability of uh, the immune responses. Okay, so huge news. Sanjay, give us your perspective here on what he was saying about immunity, but also how effective or efficacious this vaccine is. Yeah, no, no doubt, Julia. You know, it, it is it is good news, no matter how you cut at it. But like you, you know, we have to ask, uh, you know, put a critical eye on these things. What he's basically saying is that the, you know, the data has shown, and, and I should point out, it's an interesting process. He hasn't seen the data. Even as the Pfizer CEO, there's this independent committee, uh, which is the only committee that can actually unblind the data and look at it. Uh, they called him Sunday, yesterday at two o'clock and basically said this, um, they've had 94 people within the trial become infected. And what they find is that uh, 90% of them were in the placebo group and 10% we're in the vaccinated group. That's where this 90% effectiveness sort of number comes from. But these are still small numbers and they and eventually Pfizer and the rest of us will get to see the data. Um, the, the other question, I think, Julia, again, to your point is preventing 90%, you know, having 90% effectiveness with regard to preventing infections is very important. How well does it do at preventing the, the most serious disease in the most vulnerable patients, right? The elderly, the people with pre-existing factors, how well does it work for them? Again, that's something we'd want to see. The point he was making at the end, I think, is a very interesting one. And it's going to come up again and again. How long does it last? Right. I mean, we know people who get infected. We're hearing reports that maybe the immunity lasts several months. It's still an unanswered question. Flu shot, as you know, Julia, is typically thought of as a yearly shot. Is this going to be the same thing? Because this is going to be a massive, massive distribution project. There are football fields full of freezers now in places all over the world that are basically starting to put the vaccine in those freezers. It has to be stored at a very cold temperature. All of this is ongoing, uh, Julia. But overall, I don't want to dampen the news. I mean, like you said, we always have to put the critical eye on it. But it is remarkable news that this is 90% of effective, far more than what the FDA would have accepted, which was 50%. So that's, that's what we're working with this morning. Yeah, great news. And as you said, we want to have a look at the underlying data here and we still have to wait for that. But what can you tell me as well about potential doses? Because when I looked at some of the numbers that the Pfizer CEO was talking to you about, I was pretty astonished. And I know you also talked to him, at least for Americans, about price here too. So what can you tell us on both of those things? Yeah, you know, Julia, I remember talking to you, I think it was back over yeah. the summer, about the idea that these companies were going to do at-risk manufacturing. They, they still don't have any kind of authorization, and yet they've been manufacturing these vaccines. I did ask Mr. Borla about it. Here's what he said. Now, we have millions already manufactured. And um, we believe that um, we are in, 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 uh, in good situation to have up to 50 million doses this year globally. And, and then he went on to say 1.3 billion doses potentially in 2021. Now, keep in mind, again, it's two shots. So 1.3 billion doses would mean 650 million people globally uh, becoming you know, able to get the vaccine. Still got to figure out, Julia, how exactly this is going to be distributed. Uh, the, the, you know, healthcare workers, people who are at high risk, such as people who are in nursing homes, they're going to be first in line. But sort of where does it go from there and how do you sort of separate it out here in the United States from the rest of the world? Because, look, you know, an infection anywhere is an infection everywhere. So there is this global responsibility with regard to this vaccine that they're going to be talking about. In the United States, it's expected to be free. 
okay, um, which is, I asked him directly, how much will it cost the average person? Free, he said, because the government has again been purchasing at risk this vaccine through Operation Warp Speed for some time. So uh, we'll see how that pans out. We'll see what it means for future years. Will it always be free in perpetuity? Uh, we don't know, but this could become a yearly shot represent the largest vaccine distribution we have ever seen in, in, in our history of the world, and at least in the United States, it could be free. We'll see what it means for the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge and it's an incredible achievement. But I guess just listening to you again, talking about the potential timeline here in terms of doses, even though they are higher than we expect, it's it's not an excuse not to handle the number, the sheer quantity of record cases that we're seeing, not just in the United States now, but around the world, too. So still a lot of work to be done here, Sanjay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me just put a punctuation on that quickly. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, even if you have tens of millions of doses available by the end of the year, great news. But no one should look at this as an excuse to stop masking, to stop yes. physical distancing, because those things make such a huge difference. We're still in an upward climb right now, and I and I, I love good news, but I'm a doctor as well, and that means we can't take our eyes off the ball. Yeah, Sanjay honor to have you on the show this morning. Thank you so much, Dr. Sanjay Thank Gupta. You, Thank, Thank you, Thank you. All right, global investors are applauding this potential game changer in the fight against COVID. The S&P and the Dow are set to soar into record territory at the open. Dow, 30,000 once again in sight. Christine Romans joins me now. Now I've done it, Christine. Oh dear. We've tempted fate with the Dow 30,000. Um, we, you and I have talked about election risk, yeah. stimulus and the need for that but this really is a game changer and you can see that playing out in the markets pre-market this morning yeah and the timing here look Sanjay's absolutely mm. right you've got these record case counts here hospitalizations going up we've got a moment here where we know this virus is is running through our lives and our economy in this country and then this a shot in the arm pun intended from Pfizer about progress on a vaccine the stock market could very well be getting ahead of itself but it just does show you how ripe it was was for some good news about finally getting something into the economy that can be a game changer maybe next year. When you look at the stocks that are up, AMC, the movie theater chain, up like 63% this morning. I mean, airlines, American Airlines up more than 20% pre-market. Anything that was beaten down, any of these businesses and industries that really faced an existential crisis because of COVID are getting big, big, big pops this morning. Yeah, light at the end of the uh, COVID tunnel, potentially. But I like how you instantly said, and I was thinking the same, are we getting ahead of ourselves? It's still yeah. going to be a long road, even even yeah. with this news and investors' ability to jump ahead. Christine, we were already jumping ahead, you and I, and I thought we were going to be talking about the uh, the presidential election <laughs> results, do. so we should talk about that as well. Um, we were in a sort of uh, tails-I-win-heads-I-win type of arrangement with these markets. You and I were saying, whatever happens here, we think that the markets will rally, and that's what happened. Are we getting ahead of ourselves with the belief that this is going to be divided Congress? It all comes down now to a runoff in Georgia that's going to determine the future path of policy potentially for yep. the entire country. That's not till January 5th. Those are two uh, seats that 
if they were to go Democrat, then Kamala Harris, the vice president, would be the deciding uh, deciding vote. Look, that, let's not get ahead of ourselves on that either. But what's really interesting to me here, you're right. It was a couple weeks ago. There's going to be a blue wave. Stock market's like that. No, there's not a blue wave. Stock market's like that. No, no matter what, you know, if, if we get Donald Trump as a president again, stock market's like that. If we get Joe Biden, stock market's like that. So there's been sort of this really interesting shifting narrative uh, explaining gains in the stock market. You and I both take pains to say, though, the stock market is not the economy. Mm. And we had a jobs report on Friday that showed 638000 jobs came back, but we're still down uh, 10 million jobs in a jobs hole. And I worry a little bit that urgency over stimulus may be fading a bit. There's no optimism about a vaccine, uh, an unemployment rate that's below 7%. But really, you got a lot of families that are still suffering here heading to the end of the year. So we can we can look at all of these things, I think, kind of separately and then take the big picture and say, this is an economy that is still sub uh, you know, not n- not doing as well as it should be doing right now and uh, is going to need some help. Yeah, no excuses here for not doing something or coming to right. uh, the table here to negotiate. No excuses. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden named his COVID-19 task force this morning, signaling an active transition period ahead of his swearing-in on January 20th. President Trump still refusing to concede the election and has vowed to mount new legal challenges. Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, great to have you with us. Let's talk about Joe Biden first. He is being called the president-elect of the United States. Various nations around the world acknowledging that. Some little bit cautious here on potential legal challenges and, and recounts, but he can't, can't hang around as far as the COVID crisis is concerned. Transition team go. That's right. And he's going to name that transition team just today. So it's clear he's trying to hit the ground running. And also important to say that there's supposed to be a meeting today of the existing coronavirus task force as well, headed up by the vice president, Mike Pence. All of this within the background, the president of the United States refusing to concede the election to Joe Biden. The question, of course, how long is the president of the United States going to hold out? One indication that he's not ready to do anything yet is the fact that the general services administrator, who is a Trump appointee so far, has not uh, moved to ascertain or acknowledge that Joe Biden is the apparent winner of the election. That's important because the GSA holds millions of dollars that need to be unlocked for the transition for everything from payroll and uh, office space and travel and other things that uh, people in the transition would have to do and would need money for. So that's held up. It's not the huge deal it could be uh, if we went 60 days into this, because as you know, the president is supposed to be sworn in about 72 days from now. So they're going to have to work that out. But it all begins with President Trump acknowledging the results of the election. Julia. Yeah, fascinating to understand that, because for now it's not a problem, but the longer this drags on, it increasingly becomes so. Joe Johns, thank you so much for uh, that context there. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, Georgia on his mind. Andrew Yang wants to flip the Senate for the Democrats by moving south. The former presidential candidate joins us to discuss the importance of the Georgia runoffs. 
the pandemic package tour. Bookings, holdings, booking holdings, my apologies, betting on a connected trip strategy to survive the coronavirus pandemic. We speak to the CEO. Stay with us. First move live from New York. We are seeing major gains for the U.S. stock markets pre-market amid news of a potential game changer in the fight against COVID-19. Pfizer and partner BioNTech say their vaccine is more than 90% effective in late stage trials. The news, as you can see, expected to propel the S&P 500 and the Dow to new records at the open today. Tech stocks, meanwhile, underperforming as investors rotate into stocks that will do well when economies improve versus ones that have done well during the pandemic, like some of the big tech stocks. Zoom is a great example. Shares of airlines. Take a look at that. And cruise lines moving. Theatres and banks all set to rally when the stock market opens. Shares of both Pfizer and BioNTech also soaring pre-market, as you can see there too. Oil also surging on the news. US crude up by more than 10% or near. 10-year bond yields also spiking by some nine basis points. So that's bonds down, yields up. It's all about increased growth potential. Markets have also been trading on the assumption of a divided Congress. So Democrats hold the House, Republicans hold the Senate. But that may not be the case if the Georgia Senate race goes the Democrats' way. Both the state seats look set for a runoff election in January after neither party won a clear victory. If Democrats can win both seats, they will then control the Senate, at least for the first two years of the Biden presidency. Joining us now is Andrew Yang, former 2020 U.S. Democratic presidential candidate. He plans to move to the state to help the Democrats take those Senate seats. Andrew, great to have you back on the show with us post-election. You know, I was watching, like I think the rest of the world, our coverage last week, and you instantly zeroed in on Georgia, recognizing the potential for the balance of power in Congress to be won or lost for the Democrats in these seats. We have to give Joe a Senate he can work with. And unfortunately, Julia, we saw Mitch McConnell play the obstructionist role during the Obama years. That is not what America needs right now. Uh, so you're right. My family is moving to Georgia. The Yang Yang setting to Georgia. And I'm going to knock on doors and uh, register voters and rally folks to come out for the Democratic Senate candidates on January 5th. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be a continuation of the campaign in many ways. Can you knock on doors, Andrew, during a pandemic? You can knock on doors if you have a mask on and you stand six feet away from the door when they answer. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's yeah, literally there, there the plan. People are out so, you know, there, there are protocols in place. Uh, but at this stage, uh, there have been campaigns that have been interacting with folks safely from a distance in various settings. You know, you also alluded to this in our coverage, and I think it's very important that Joe Biden got millions of votes here, a record number of votes. But Donald Trump and the Republicans also got millions of votes. And we have to acknowledge here that for all the concerns about what the leadership of the Republican Party looked like. There were millions of Americans who still decided that the Republicans' policy choices best represent them relative to the Democrats. In order to try and ensure a win in Georgia, Andrew, what policies need to be dropped by the Democrats in your view and what need to be kept? 
I'm not convinced that it was a policy discussion, Julia. I, I think that many people, unfortunately, have become become engaged in politics uh, as a war of characters uh, or symbols as much as things that are going to improve their lives. And I think that's what Democrats need to change. Democrats need to make clear that here are the things that we want to do that will actually help you and your family and have people believe that. Unfortunately, many Americans right now don't believe the promises of politicians. And it's one thing that I think has continued to elevate Trump's support. Trumpism is going to be here for quite some time because institutional mistrust will, will be here for years. So you're saying no matter what the, the Democrats promise here, people don't believe them. What specific policies do the Democrats need to go into this runoff promoting, Andrew? I, I guess I want specifics because there was a lot of confusion about things like court packing for the, for the Supreme Court, tax rises, and people weren't clear if those tax rises were relevant to them or their small business, for example. I just feel like in terms of policy, and you've kind of made this point, it was so noisy I'm not sure people really understand what they're getting here. There is a lot of misinformation uh, out of the Republican camp. I mean, Joe's plan was to raise taxes on people who are making over $400,000 a year, which is a very, very small sliver of American taxpayers. Uh, to me, the front and center policy that we should be emphasizing is cash relief, particularly while we're still trying to recover from this pandemic. There have been tens of millions of Americans who filed for unemployment, and there is deprivation in every community around the country as small businesses close. That's what most Americans see around them. That's what they care most about. And if Democrats were to message, look, we're going to put money into your hands and help shore up the jobs in your community, that to me would be a winning message. Okay, and what about some of the more extreme policies, the bold Green New Deal, for example? I've mentioned it already, court packing, so adding uh, Supreme Court judges to those that we already have. Andrew, are things like this, does Joe Biden need to come out and say, look, I'm not going to do anything radical on this front. I'm not going to dramatically raise taxes for anyone, quite frankly, in a, in a pandemic. Do you think these things are important too? Uh, you know, if you look at Joe's proposals, Joe is proposing to invest hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure, which most Americans agree with. I mean, we can see that our roads and schools... Uh, and bridges are in desperate need of repair. Um, so when you actually get into the substance of it, most Americans agree with what Joe is proposing. The problem, Julia, is that you have large organizations and political actors spending tens of millions fear-mongering, like scaring people, being like, oh, he's going to do something uh, that's gonna hurt you and your family, when if you actually look at the substance of it, that isn't the case. Uh, so. That is a, a monumental challenge, though, is that the misinformation environment in the United States is very, very high, where everyone's trying to scare everyone instead of bring people together and actually drive towards some kind of solution. That's why you see the dysfunction in D.C. where they can't get a relief bill passed, too. Yeah, this is a this is a great point. I mean, we have to your point. You're right. We believe more people voted for Joe Biden than for Donald Trump. But. 70-odd million people still voted for Donald Trump, and we have to remember that too here when we try and unite the country. Andrew, very quickly, do you worry that the vaccine news will prevent a deal being reached in the short term on more financial aid? I, I certainly hope not. I mean, mm. you're right that that would be a concern where Republicans will say, see, things are going back to normal, but things are not going back to normal for tens of millions of Americans that are right now struggling to keep a roof over their head. So we need a relief bill just as much today as we did yesterday. Yeah. 
Andrew Yang, great to chat to you. Former 2020 presidential candidate. Good luck in Georgia. We shall see. All right, the market open is next. Stay with us. Bye. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the first trading day of the week. And there is major excitement, I can tell you. On global markets this Monday, Pfizer says its COVID-19 vaccine is more than 90% effective in late-stage trials. The Dow and the S&P have opened at fresh record highs. Tech stocks, though, were still higher, but they are relatively underperforming. It's the kind of data that investors have been waiting months for, and it's giving a huge boost to the economic-sensitive stocks that will do well once economies are back up and running and behaviour gets somewhere near back to normal. The news comes at a grim time in the fight against COVID with new US cases soaring by more than 100,000 cases a day. All this as investors look ahead to how the Biden presidency will affect the outlook for things like stimulus, taxes and business regulation as we were just discussing. For more on Wall Street's reaction to Biden's win, today's vaccine news, I'm joined by Scott Maynard. He's the Global Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners. Bless you. Scott, great to have you uh, with us on the show. Talk to me about the vaccine first. I didn't intend to talk to you about this first, but that's the news of the morning and investors are clearly loving it. Well, Julia, I think it's the big news of the day. I mean, uh, obviously the uh, resolution around the election is important, but uh, this is taking us to a whole new level. And, uh, you know, I was just looking at stocks here before uh, I came on and, you know, based upon what I see here, I would expect that uh, the S&P will be up at 4,200 uh, before this this move is over. So very, very constructive for the market. Are we getting ahead of ourselves, Scott? I mean, we were talking earlier on the show about the potential timeline here. It's still going to take some time. Assuming we get everybody on board, we've got anti-vaxxers in the United States. There's all sorts of considerations, distribution. It's going to take some time. Are we perhaps pricing in too much optimism too soon? And it's day one, and I'm already saying that. Well, Julia, look, I mean, obviously, when we have a big move like we've had over the course of the last week or so, and you get this kind of uh, a big abrupt move at the end of a rally, Uh, You know, we are going to have to have a period of consolidation, and uh, I think stocks could pull back maybe 5% from where we are right now. But, uh, you know, the one thing that I always am reminded of from the work that Danny Kahneman did on uh, behavioral finance, and that is don't get yourself uh, absorbed into these short-term moves, but look at where the trend is taking you and invest based on that long-term trend. So that's a great point to make, particularly in light of what we saw last week with the the presidential election. It seems, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that investors are sort of looking and positioning in the idea that we're going to have divided Congress. So the Democrats keeping the House, the Republicans potentially holding the Senate. And yet we have this runoff vote in Georgia where effectively the entire balance of power of of Congress will be decided. Is that another risk that we're perhaps overlooking at this stage, Scott? What's your view there? Uh, I think so, Julia. I mean, the Senate is not resolved by any means. Uh, However, you know, if it did turn into a blue sweep, uh, that'll probably be good for the economy because uh, the Democrats are more prepared to spend money on stimulus than the Republicans. Uh, 
the, the question really becomes a longer term issue, uh, which is, you know, how sustainable will these uh, deficits be? And uh, also, you know, what will happen with interest rates, meaning if the government suddenly has a massive increase in its borrowing needs, it's going to push long term rates up more, which is going to bring the Federal Reserve back into play. You see, that's a phenomenal point to make as well, because I was just looking at the global bond market reaction to the news we got this morning. And I guess one way you could look at this is perhaps suggest that the belief is that the United States will recover quicker once we get a vaccine than than Europe will. Do you agree with that just based on even today what we're looking at in terms of, of the COVID crisis and the differing reactions in terms of stimulus response? Well, I think that, you know, in terms of rates, that uh, the market's getting ahead of itself. Uh, and, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that the increase in rates is going to stop right here. But, uh, you know, at some point, there is some level of long-term rates which will just not be acceptable uh, to the Federal Reserve and other central banks. And, you know, they've made it very clear to us that they are, are very focused on inflation. They are very focused on keeping rates down. And uh, and trying to get us back to full employment as fast as possible, and you know, given you know, even with the vaccine, it's great news, it's awesome news. But the bottom line is, right now, that's not going to put restaurant workers back into their jobs right. or people that are in small or medium-sized enterprise. Couldn't agree more. Do you think this changes the calculus with regards hope that a financial aid deal can be agreed? Because to your point, and I couldn't agree more with you, it's still needed. Right. Well, I think that this is going to embolden the Republicans even yeah. further. Uh, there are many on, on the right who believe that uh, we don't need more stimulus. Uh, and uh, so, you know, as long as the Republicans retain control of the Senate, they're going to be a big roadblock uh, for anything other than reducing taxes and probably infrastructure spending and, and maybe you know, some sort of a short-term uh, uh, return of unemployment benefits, but they're they're not going to be in favor of the three trillion dollar plan that that uh, you know Speaker Pelosi was proposing. No, Scott. What should investors be doing today in light of all the things we've discussed and the still many ongoing uncertainties? Well, you know, first off, you know, the first thing I'll do after this is I'll pop a bottle of champagne and celebrate the rally. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm with you. But uh, after that, you know. I'll probably take a more sober look at, at what's going on and, uh, you know, try to figure out what the next uh, rebalancing for our portfolios is. But the, the bottom line is uh, uh, people should have more confidence, I think, in the stock market right now and uh, not worry too much about interest rates. Yeah, big sigh of relief. Thank you, Scott. Great to chat to you as always. Uh, Scott Miner, the Global Chief Great. Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners. Stay well. All right, coming up here on First Move, the oil market is also hot this morning as the world hopes of a coronavirus vaccine arrive, arriving soon. We'll take you to the Middle East to get the latest. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Oil prices soaring at this moment on optimism for a coronavirus vaccine after Pfizer said early data shows its vaccine is more than 90% effective against COVID-19. John Defterius joins us now. John, great to have you with us. Hopes for a resurgence of global growth and some return to normality. We may be jumping ahead, but investors don't care. Oil higher. No, they... 
No, they really are. They're pushing oil prices up, uh, what, 9, 10% on, on the session here. And this is the biggest gain since uh, uh, May. But if you look at one area that's been hit hard by the pandemic, it is oil uh, for jet fuel, for cars, trucks, you name it in transportation, Julia. And because we froze up, uh, we saw a drop of better than 40% uh, since the start of the year until we've seen the spike up today. Interesting language that came out also from a panel I was chairing virtually, but at the Atapak here in uh, Abu Dhabi, we had the... Um, Minister of Energy for Saudi Arabia, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, saying that they want to remain flexible. This is as the news was crossing on Pfizer and progress on the vaccine, saying that the cuts of 7.7 .7 million barrels a day that we see right now, they may be flexible and not phase them out in the first quarter of uh, 2021. Uh, they would extend if necessary. And it was all about the widespread distribution of the, of the vaccine, not just in the United States, but also in the emerging markets around the world. So I think to your point, Julian, what you were talking about with Scott there, uh, we may be putting the a cart before the horse here. This is a knee-jerk reaction and an oversold market right now, but also with an OPEC Plus group that's willing to keep the cuts, it sounds like, if necessary, depending on the development of the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to talk about the presidential election, what was initially part of our, uh, our plan, JD. Talk to me about the different drivers here. What does a Biden presidency mean for the energy market and the region specifically? Yeah, it is, it is the key question. In fact, they were trying to sort that out on the panel today. I would put it under the umbrella, Julia, of re-engagement uh, of Joseph Biden. Uh, number one, could be here in the Middle East with Iran. Uh, I don't think he's going to sprint to do so. It'll be a tougher package than put forward by the Obama administration. But it could allow up to three and a half million barrels of production for Iran over time. Uh, Saudi Arabia said they would deal with it when necessary, but they kind of got the same spirit. U.S.-China trade, I, I think, uh, also you're not going to hear the bellicose language of Donald Trump banging away on tariffs all the time. Uh, he has to look tough on jobs, he being Joe Biden, uh, and protect the American worker. But I would imagine multilateral discussions, not bilateral, and trying to get China to come their way on, on that front. And, and finally, $2 trillion pledged to renewables and the energy transition and rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, the OPEC Secretary General said it's been very beneficial to have the U.S. oil and gas producers in a dialogue with OPEC. What happens under Joe Biden? Here's the view of OPEC. We look forward to continuing uh, this dialogue in the months and years to come because the U.S. has a special place on the table in the global energy transition. And this global conversation would be incomplete, as we both found out in the last four years, without the U.S. taking its uh, rightful position uh, in, uh, in, 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 in this in this in these discussions. I tell you, in the last uh, 12 months, Julia, from Atapak and this big oil conference in Abu Dhabi, the narrative has changed radically about the energy transition. So you even hear OPEC saying the same thing, but there's been a washout of the oil and gas producers and the Permian, for example. 500 companies have gone bankrupt, $300 billion uh, of debt. Uh, they're saying, look, let's not abandon the hydrocarbons. Let's make it a transition to work together. I don't know if Joe Biden's going to be the same with Donald Trump engaging with OPEC all the time. But you heard the words from OPEC now. They're willing to do so. Yes. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. It's going to be a fascinating uh, period yeah. of time to mm -hmm. watch. All right, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for U.S. stocks once more. The Dow and the S&P are in record territory. Bump gains here on vaccine hopes led 
caused by travel and tourism stocks. Some of those, the most beaten up stocks that we've seen over the past few months. Music to the ears of our next guest, perhaps the CEO of online travel firm Booking.com. Up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Kamala Harris has made history as the first female and the first black and South Asian vice president-elect. CNN's Kyung La looks at why this moment means so much to women and to girls across the country and the world. Wearing the color of the women's right to vote movement a century ago, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris showed the world what the future now holds. Every little girl watching tonight sees that this is a country of possibility. The audience mirroring her message. Now we know that we have hope to do that. From those who saw her in person. As a refugee myself that I came here 11 years ago, I'm really excited to see her in the office. who spilled into city streets. Today was a monumental day. I didn't wake up this morning expecting for this to be one of the best days of my life, but it really is. To post across social media. Women and girls, especially those of color, celebrating themselves, finally reflected in one of the most powerful positions in the country. Paving the path has been a passion for Harris, the daughter of Jamaican and Indian immigrants, a mission instilled in her by her late mother, as she told me during her own presidential run. When I see those little girls in particular, I mean, I see myself, right? And I see the children of my family, and I see the children of our country, and I see the promise of our country. My mother had many sayings, and one of them is, you may be the first First to do many things, make sure you're not the last. A dream now realized. While I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last. And it's not just with future generations that Harris hopes to have an impact. It's with women right now, as we saw during her presidential run and also her time as a senator. She hires a diverse staff leaning on women of color and not just in numbers of staff, but in placing those women in decision making roles. Kyung Law, CNN, Scottsdale, Arizona. All right, let's bring it back to our top story now, and that's Pfizer's vaccine hopes and the news we got this morning. One massive beneficiary from today's positive news, of course, travel and tourism. Take, for example, Booking Holdings. Its brands include hotels, airline tickets, and car hire. A short time ago, its stock was up some 16%, as you can see. It comes as the United States is approaching 10 million COVID cases with 237,000 victims. In Europe, nearly 1.3 million people have lost their lives and there are more than 50 million cases. According to Booking Holdings in the third quarter, room nights were down 43% year over year, but that's an improvement on the 87% drop during Q2. Glenn Fogel is CEO and President of Booking Holdings and joins us now. Glenn, fantastic to have you with us. Lots of current challenges to discuss, but you must be very relieved to hear the positive news on the vaccine. Well, thank you for having me, and absolutely, this is just wonderful news. Of course, we've all been hoping for it, and 
we'd heard the phase one trials going well, phase two trials going well, but as uh, we all know, phase three is a critical thing. And you hear this news is just fantastic. And while it won't be a change overnight, it certainly, I think, makes everybody feel that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, crucial distinction that the short term, we've still got escalating cases all over the world. Talk to me about what you're seeing now in terms of bookings, whether that's in Europe or in the United States, to ongoing hotspots. Well, it's gone south uh, very badly in many parts of the world, Europe particularly. You know, we talked about how we had a very nice summer where there's a real rebound from the spring lockdowns. But things started going bad, you know, in October. And I talked last week in our earnings call how in the seven days preceding my earnings call, the new room night bookings were down 70 percent versus the year earlier. And that was just a a significant drop. You know, as the virus uh, infections go up, governments start putting in more restrictions. People are concerned about traveling and travel business just goes down very sharply. Yeah, it's sentiment, surely, more even than the lockdowns at this stage. People will simply get frightened to either get on planes or move around too much and risk being quarantined the other side. It's it's a number of different factors. Absolutely. And unfortunately, it's going into the winter where in the summer, at least, you could take a drive trip to somewhere, a little holiday and say, well, we'll drive somewhere. We'll be outside. It'll be wonderful and nice. In the northern hemisphere, it's getting cold and dark. Winter is not a good time for many, many vacations just to be out by a lake. Sure, there's ski holidays, but even those are very restricted because uh, people don't want to get close to anybody else. So maybe out on the slopes it's okay, but you don't want to be crowded in in a lift line. You certainly don't want to be crowded in the lodge. So unfortunately, we still see a significant amount of trouble in the travel industry, even with this wonderful news, for some time. Yeah, it's going to take time. So, Glenn, you wrote an op-ed that was the reason initially that I wanted to talk to you because you do argue and continue to argue that businesses like your own continue to need support at this stage. Glenn, what hopes do you have in light of the presidential election result that that hope will be coming or do you still see it as challenged? Well, we absolutely have congratulations to President-elect Biden. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm very pleased that we are moving forward past this election time to actually start producing... uh, things that are necessary for our industry, which is uh, aid. We need a new, in the U.S., we need a new package of aid for the travel industry. You know, we've seen this work, actually, in Japan, where it's safer to travel, or countries like Thailand, where it's safer to travel. Both governments there put together packages to help stimulate the travel industry. And we worked with them, and we saw that stimulus. And we saw people get incentivized to travel, and people did travel. So when travel gets to be safe again, we need governments around the world, particularly the U.S., to put together a big package, a package that will drive people to want to travel right away so we can bring back employment. All the people have lost their jobs. We need to get that going. Yeah, a package to support the tourism sector, but it also requires significant control of the virus itself in order to give people the confidence still to travel, whether it's international or domestic. Glenn, keep in touch with us, please. We'll see how it goes. Glenn Fogel, CEO of Booking Holdings. They're great to chat to you. All right. Quick look at the markets. We have to be very quick, though, because uh, the show is well and truly over. We are at record highs for the Dow and the S&P 500. There is the snapshot. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. Quick. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.